I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I moved to 29 Palms when I was 20 years old. There was a group of young married couples who wanted a Calvary Chapel in 29 Palms. And my dad thought it might be a good idea if I went out there and gave him a Calvary Chapel. And I think he was just trying to get me out of the house. Um, I was 20, I was working these you know, factory jobs and I, he wasn't real you know, pleased with me anyway. So 29 Palms was a wonderful experience. The, the church that I started there is no longer there. But it's spread all over the nation now. Um, our members were typically uh, Marines besides the locals. And so we'd have this influx and outflow of Marines. And this was uh, right at the, the end of the Vietnam uh, conflict so that um, more and more guys were coming to 29 Palms as like their, their last outpost before going home. So it was, it, it's wonderful to see now where they've gone and what they've done and how God's blessed their lives. But anyway, when I lived out there, um, I would drive down to Palm Springs on occasion. Uh, in fact, after a while, I ended up uh, being invited to teach a home Bible study in Palm Springs. And uh, sometimes I'd attend this church. I liked the pastor, and on Wednesday nights, he uh, was teaching through books of the Bible, and I enjoyed that. Uh, enjoyed hearing what he had to say. Uh, I would also visit this Christian coffee house called The Ark, uh, an interesting place with an interesting group of people. Of course, this is like 1971, uh, 70, 71. And, uh, you know, so it's still hippie-ish. Uh, th there was a guy there uh, whose name was Justin Time. Uh, he had uh, named himself. He had been inspired by Arthur Blessed. Blessed. And... Um, uh, there's also this old guy, Brother Harold. He was, um, oh, he was of dwarfish stature with long white hair and long beard. And he was somewhat of a, of a Christian guru to young people around Palm Springs. Um, we called him the walking concordance because he had practically memorized the whole Bible. He had this incredible memory of scripture. And uh, he, he was a wonderful man. He loved God. He exuded joy. And so he was a treat to be around. Sometimes I'd sit in the ark and, and have discussions with him. And then sometimes he'd show up at that same Wednesday night Bible study uh, that I would go to. And one night he was there. And the pastor was teaching from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I think. And... Uh, and uh, after his, he'd teach, he'd let people ask questions, which I think is a good idea because 
it gives them an opportunity to fill in the blanks or to uh, make sense of something that didn't make sense when he was preaching the sermon. Um, and because so much of what I say doesn't make sense, we don't have time for questions afterwards. <laughs> but, uh, but someone asked this question, you know, Pastor, based on what you taught tonight, are we supposed to give God thanks for everything? And he said, notice that here in 1 Thessalonians, it says, in everything give thanks, not for everything give thanks. And Brother Harold blurted out, in Ephesians chapter 5 it does. <laughs> so he busted him. And the, the, the pastor, he, he got this embarrassed smile on his face. He said, Brother Harold, I'm in 1 Thessalonians right now. Just stay out of Ephesians for now. <laughs> I thought that was a nice dodge. Okay, um, we have agreed, because I suggested the idea and you nodded, that November is Thanksgiving month. And uh, we're almost up to Thanksgiving Day. And you can complete your daily list on Thanksgiving Day if you like. Or you can go on for the rest of your life. But here we are um, just before Thanksgiving and we have this impossible challenge. Does the Bible teach us to give God thanks for bad things? Lord, uh, my wife just told me she's divorcing me. Well... <laughs> Years later, I say thank you. At the time, I didn't. Uh, that's kind of weird now. <laughs> um, okay, there are Christians whose interpretation is rigidly literal. And they will tell parents who have lost a child, you need to give God thanks for taking your child. Could you do that? I couldn't do that. I don't think I could ever reconcile myself to that in this life. The loss would always be there and would always be too great. But for the literalist, it's what the Bible says, so it's what they must do. Even if uh, it feels wrong or it feels difficult at first, oh, you must give thanks for everything. Since this is their belief, they have to produce some kind of rationale. Well, why is it okay? Or what makes it okay? And you can say, well, because there are things you don't know. Of course, there are always things we don't know. Um, in Isaiah 57, uh, God speaks to his prophet and he says, um, the good are perishing out of the land and no one pays attention or takes it to heart that God is sparing them the horrible days to come. You know, so if, if, a, if a good person dies, um, we might think what a tragedy, what a loss for us, what a loss for the world. Um, but uh, they might be going, phew, because of what comes after they're gone. Um, King Jeroboam uh, had a son who was ill. And he could not go to the prophet himself because he had created this cult and, uh, and a, a substitute religion for Israel. So he sent his wife to the prophet of God and, uh, to find out if his child was going to live or not. And the prophet said, um, no, the child's not going to live. 
because of all of the house of, of Jeroboam and what they're going to suffer and how they're going to, to die, this child will die because God has seen some good in him. So he's going to spare him of, of what's coming. So that's, that's odd, but it, it can be a rationale. So yeah, give God thanks for everything because we just don't know everything. Uh, but uh, others, their rationale is absolutist. That is, let me say authoritarian. You just have to do this. God moves in mysterious ways, and that's all you get. All right? that, that's the only answer you get. God moves in mysterious ways, accept it, give thanks, and go on. Then there's the rationalist who will say something like, well, if you give God thanks for this, it will change your perspective on it. Um, and you'll, you'll begin to see it with new eyes. I, I believe that that works for some things. In fact, I think that giving thanks changes your perspective on life in general. But it doesn't work for everything. Um, we have to accept everything that comes because it does appear in our lives. But we don't have to give thanks for everything. Or I should make that a question maybe. Do we have to give thanks for everything? There is an upside down facet to Jesus' worldview. Right? He, he, he turns things on their head. In Luke's gospel, he said, blessed are you poor. Well, that's upside down. Uh, blessed are the wealthy. Uh, blessed are you who mourn. No, blessed are the happy and, and the joyful and the party goers. Blessed are you uh, uh, who weep now. And blessed are you when persecuted and slandered um, for his sake. Uh, then in a private conversation with his disciples, um, he, he, he cuts into an argument they're having over which one of them is the greatest. And he says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. In other words, he takes the organizational chart and he turns it upside down. He says, all those um, out here on the periphery, you serve them. And maybe you have the power and the authority and the wealth. Use it to serve them. I, I read that passage again just this week and I thought, what would it be like to own a company where you made sure everyone you employed was paid more than you were? I mean, who's doing all the work here? Well, yeah, I had the big idea. And um, I know perhaps every department, what needs to go on there. I write all the job descriptions. But who's doing the work here? And, uh, and I thought, what, it would, what would it be like? So, okay, that's an upside down worldview, right? Yes? yes. <laughs> Do you want to own that company? Well, maybe not. <laughs> uh, we do have to learn new attitudes about some things. Uh, Christians are not guaranteed immunity from pain. 
And anyone who tells you that is trying to sell you something. Uh, our trust in God does not exempt us from suffering. Sometimes when, you know, when we're in pain, the temptation is to say, God, what have I done? And I, the best answer is, you were born a human. Welcome to humankind, because this is what happens to all of us. Giving thanks in our suffering can teach us to look at suffering in a new way, but it won't exempt us from suffering. If we give thanks for things that we, we don't understand, it creates in our minds room for mystery. Uh, well, uh, can I live with mystery? Some of us can't. Some of us are anti-mystery. Everything has to be analyzed and examined and tested. But um, the world is full of mystery. And mystery is how God often comes to us, how he speaks to us. Mystery is, is the paper in which a gift is wrapped. And when the mystery is revealed, then the gift appears. Paul says that for a long time, God's gift of salvation to the Gentiles was a mystery. It was hidden. It was all wrapped in scripture, but no one saw it clearly. He says, now, in these times, it's being fully revealed. David Steindel Rast says, once out of a hundred times, we will be challenged to respond fully and gratefully to something which we cannot enjoy. This, too, is given reality. It, too, is gift. Although I cannot enjoy it, will I still be grateful? It all depends on whether or not I have learned to unwrap the gift within the gift. Opportunity. The real gift is always opportunity to grow. It's another way of looking at, at the challenge. Martin Laird, in his book, A Sunlit Absence, talks about contemplative prayer and some of the hindrances that we have when we sit in silence to fill our minds with God and focus only on him. For instance, he talks about distractions. And he tells us that if we meet them with stillness and not commentary, they contribute to our training in awareness and stillness. In other words, uh, what do I do when I have an, a, a distraction? I do the same thing as I'm doing already. I go back to my sacred word, my breath, you know, whatever it is that centers me in Christ, and let everything else go. I, I move back into awareness. And then I'm aware of the distraction, but I'm no longer distracted by it because now I'm aware of it. This is always you know, the way forward. So distractions, he says, eventually help us to deepen in our contemplation because we're building strength. We're, we're enhancing our skill, fine-tuning it through our practice. He talks about boredom. And, he's, and he says that boredom reveals, this, this is catchy, that our prayer is going deeper than where our thoughts and feelings reach. 
I'm bored. Why? Because my mind has nothing to do. And I'm not feeling anything. And he says, your prayer has just moved to a deeper level than thoughts and feelings. He talks about negative emotions. That when they come up in contemplation, they take us to their roots. And that's the wonderful thing about being in contemplative silence, is that when things come up, you can just be with them, and then they manifest you know, what plot of soil in our soul they're growing in. And when you see that, you realize, oh, when I have these thoughts, this is always how I feel. Condemned, worthless, unfortunate, unhappy, lonely. And, and you get to those roots, and now something can be done about them. He says, the inner calm that is slowly cultivated by the practice of contemplation encourages and enables us to see right into the mind. Sometimes things that were unconscious to us begin to bubble up. He talks about our intellectual struggles with contemplation. And um, again, he says, this brings us to mystery. He indicates that freedom does not come when all our questions are answered, but when we stop allowing our intellect to filter and control what comes to us from God. Um, Again, this last week I was reading when Jesus came to his hometown in Nazareth and he began to to teach the reaction of of his old neighbors. uh, And they're asking, where did this man get these things? You know, we've known Jesus since he was a boy. Uh, what is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Jones and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, and he could not, and he could do no mighty work there. And he marveled at their unbelief. They were relying on what they knew about Jesus. And what they knew was accurate. They, they did know him and his family members. But that wasn't enough knowledge to, to really know what Jesus was all about. But relying on their knowledge, they believed only what they knew. So the intellect filtered out faith. They couldn't go beyond what they knew. And they limited what Jesus could do for them. That's why I don't want my intellect to be the gatekeeper of my experience with God. Because God can pour much more of himself into me if my intellect isn't standing at the doorway saying, wait a minute, what are you doing this for? What does this mean? What's the value here? Uh, I don't understand. doesn't make sense. So, okay. God uses sometimes hardship and suffering to work good into our lives, to create opportunity for growth and so on. But that does not mean that we're supposed to give him thanks for everything. And, and why not? Why would, I, why would I say, that's not how I interpret this? I would interpret this perhaps as give thanks to God for everything good, everything in this context of worship and community that Paul's talking about, um, every, every good gift that he gives to us. Um, but give him thanks for anything, everything. 
all the bad things, all the evil. The first reason why I don't think we have to, are supposed to give thanks for everything is because we need to draw the line at absurdity. If our interpretation of scripture suggests a ridiculous response from us, then we should look for a more accurate interpretation of scripture. Because I don't think the Bible ever teaches anything ridiculous. I mean, it teaches some things perhaps that are far-fetched or difficult to reach or hard to imagine, but not absurdity. The Bible is not about absurdity. Um, If it were, there'd be a lot of Christians walking around without a right hand, without a right foot, and with a right eye gouged out. (laughs) Because, you know, Jesus said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off and throw it away. Why would it be absurd to cut off your right hand and throw it away because it's, it's... you sin with it. Because you still have a left hand. Right? I still have a left eye. I still have a, you know, a left foot. And um, so, I mean, if he were serious, he'd say, amputate your limbs and gouge out your eyes. And you might want to put an ice pick in your ears and cut your tongue off too while you're at it because all of these can be used to sin. Okay? So, so it's true that the prophets were sometimes told to do strange things. Um, But why? I mean, um, I think of Jeremiah and Ezekiel's street art, uh, where they do these public performances and that have meaning. And sometimes it was very strange what they were told to do, Uh, Ezekiel especially. Well, no, actually, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all were asked to do strange things. Isaiah, run around naked for a year. Who's that prophetic streaker? It's Isaiah. Um, uh, I don't need to go into that anymore. Um, They did strange things to grab attention, to, to emphasize, maybe to the point of exaggeration, emphasize a point that God wants to make for his people. So here's the, the, the prophet doing some odd thing, and people are saying, Ezekiel, why are you doing this? And then he explains, because this is what's going to happen to you. So God told Ezekiel, this afternoon, I'm going to take away the delight of your eyes. In other words, I'm going to take your wife's life. Your wife is going to die this afternoon. And he said, don't grieve. Don't grieve. Get dressed. Pack your bags and exit your house. And when people say, Ezekiel, explain to us what the heck you're doing. Your wife is dead. Everyone expects him to tear his clothes, to, to cry loudly, to invite the mourners in. He does none of that. And he tells him, God has told me this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to go into exile and even while your loved ones are dying, you won't wait to mourn them because you have to be on the move and get out of town. Wow, hard lesson. God told him, don't grieve. But he didn't say, instead, give thanks. Okay, so that would be absurd. Second, if we're not even to mention certain evil actions 
How much less are we to give thanks for them in prayer? Earlier in this chapter, Paul said, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Um, okay, I've got a problem with crude joking, all right? But uh, it's, just, it, it's only because it's really funny. Uh, I, I wouldn't indulge otherwise. That Paul is saying, look, um, instead of this, instead of having conversations about this stuff, th- these things that's not even proper to mention among saints, give thanksgiving. So it's not... For these crude things, give thanks. He's saying instead of these crude things, instead of having this kind of conversation, have this kind of conversation. Give thanks. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is sinful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And so if I'm not even supposed to talk about it, am I really supposed to give thanks for it? Third, now... This may ruffle some feathers, um, and because I'm not really bothered by that, I'm not going to smooth the feathers. Uh, Let them be ruffled. But um, we don't give thanks for everything because God isn't responsible for everything. Now, someone will say, what about God's providence? Um, What what about it? Do we see that strictly taught in scripture so that every single thing that happens to me in life is God's doing? You know, that that God told me that kid, or pardon me, God told that kid in the seventh grade to beat me up. Is that God's doing? I think that one day I'm going to be saying, Thank you, God, for all the illnesses I had as a child. And he's going to say, what are you talking about? I didn't do that. That wasn't me. um, You're a weak kid. You know, you were susceptible to scarlet fever, whatever it was that you had. Um, I'm not responsible for that. Don't thank me. I didn't do this. In Job... Satan challenged God, pardon me, yeah, in Job, Satan challenged God. He says, is Job really all that great? Because God's bragging on him. And Satan says, stretch out your hand on all that he possesses. Take it all away, and he'll curse you to your face. And God says to him, Job is in your hands, or all that Job possesses is in your hands. God doesn't stretch out his hand to bring problems into Job's life. It's Satan's hand that does it. When you say, well, isn't God responsible since he gave Satan permission? God knew. He knew what would come of it. Um, And yes, he he allowed it, but it's not the same thing as being the cause. 
And uh, Job said, thank you, God, for all the evil that's come into my life. The loss of all of my stock and uh, livestock and possessions and the death of all 10 of my children at once. Thank you so much. God would say, I didn't do that, Job. Satan did that. Of course, Job could say, well, you gave him permission to do that. And um, it's, not, it's not the same thing. Thank you, God, for giving the same permission to do that. Oh, I'm getting out of, out of my uh, notes here. <laughs> what we learn from Job is it's okay to be silent. I mean, the first, the first wave of terrible things that happens, he blessed God. He didn't curse him, he blessed him. The second wave of bad things that happened, he didn't say anything. So we can say, well, he's not blessing God anymore, is he? No, he's not. It's, it's gone over the top now. But he's not saying anything. He's not saying anything bad or good. He's not cursing. He's not blessing. It's okay to be silent. In fact, we learn from Job, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to be angry. And it's okay to complain. Now, at one point, Job's friends are panicking because he's gone off. And to them, it sounds like blasphemy. And they, and they tell him, so Job, you should not be talking like that. You shouldn't say such things. And Job said, look at my condition, would you? You've got to let a person in this condition vent. You've got to allow them to pray angry prayers. You've got to allow them to accuse God of injustice because that's exactly what I feel has happened to me. And it really was an injustice what happened to him. I mean, God gave Job credit for being blameless and, and perfect and upright. Are we supposed to give thanks for the sex slave trade, for drug traffic, for child abuse, or when a child suffers and dies at the hands of a monster? Are we supposed to give thanks for that? God is not pleased with human violence spreading over the earth. That was the reason for the flood, because of the spread of violence. That doesn't please God, and he doesn't want to be thanked for that or credited it with it. He said, it's the spirit of man that strives against my spirit. Through Jeremiah, God addressed child sacrifice because the Israelites or, or the Judeans had picked that up from their pagan uh, predecessors in the land of Canaan. And God says, they offered up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind that they should do this abomination. What they're doing was not my command, didn't even enter my mind. So he's not saying, let's Let's give thanks because people are throwing their babies into the fire. There's a fourth reason why it's doubtful that we're to give thanks for everything. And that's because God's gifts to us are good. James says, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Uh, no eclipse with God, um, 
God is light, John says, and in him is no darkness at all. In Job's first round of trials, he did not give thanks, but he did bless God, and that's different. Father Romuald, uh, in my first conversation with him, told me, bless God for everything that comes, even painful things. I'm not thanking him for it, but I am still praising God. I'm still able to say God is good. God be praised. Not for this, but in this, I'm still able to do this. It's a way to rise above what comes, to not be overwhelmed by it. We forget that everything in our lives matters to God. Our sorrows, our suffering, our fears, our anxieties. Peter said, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So even though it may seem trivial, everything in your life matters to him. Oh Lord, I really shouldn't be so upset over this. And, and God says, okay, you're upset. Let's, let's deal with that. Let's talk about it. And if you, if you shouldn't be, okay, you won't be by the end of our conversation. But maybe you should be. Or maybe it's all right that you are, because even these things matter to me. I care about anything that causes you anxiety. You see, we need to connect everything to God. I've been with parents who have lost their children. I've been in intensive care units when a 15-year-old girl has been unplugged from all the machines. Um, I've been with a close friend sitting for hours um, near the bedside of his 10-year-old son who's in a coma he was not coming out of. In fact, there's no electrical activity in his brain at all, so it wasn't even a coma. You don't say, this isn't bad, or this isn't wrong, there's nothing wrong with this. You can say, this is very wrong. This should not be. This is messed up. Because it is. Jesus' prayer from the cross was not, thank you, God, that I'm baptized with this baptism and I'm drinking from this cup. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if that same prayer comes from deep inside of you, you're not evil for saying that instead of saying, thank you, Lord. Because we all feel abandoned at times. We all feel forsaken to our misery. People like to keep a distance from suffering, even if it's a close friend. After a while, you lose contact. 
We don't like to be reminded that it can happen to us. And, and we don't like being around it because we're so uncomfortable. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to, how to act. Job grieved his losses. He tore his clothes. He shaved his head. He fell on the ground. But he blessed God. Because blessing God connects him to that bad thing. Now God has entered the arena. You see, I'm here, but I'm all alone, and I'm suffering, but I bless God, and now God is here too. We experience a tragedy, and we say, oh God, I hate this loss. I can't live with this. But in doing that, you're connecting it to God. You're not leaving him out. You're not walking away from him. We, we do this even with our sin. We connect our sin to God. You confess your sin and you say, Jesus. Romuald said, if you cannot connect something with God, then you're lost. You hear what he's saying? If you can't connect this with God, you're lost. Because now it's just you all by yourself. You read what, what Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, one time I thought I saw all, all five stages of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work on death and dying. Um, I saw Jesus in denial, uh, let this cut pass from me, uh, bargaining, uh, all things are possible for you, Father. Uh, don't make me go through this. Um, Finally, he comes to acceptance. But what I see is Jesus in his, in his agony. I see him human. I, I see him the, the true prototype for humankind. That we can go through these impossible times, but we go through them praying. And sometimes the impossibility of it deepens our prayer. In Luke's gospel, he talks about Jesus in the garden and he goes and he prays and he comes and finds his disciples asleep and he goes and prays by himself again. And Luke says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Sometimes the passion, the agony, brings a greater earnestness and, and sincerity to our prayers. Here's an irony. We do give thanks to God for the suffering and death of his son. Because the cross is not a dead end. It's an open door. The mystery of good defeating evil, of love prevailing over hate, of the ultimate victory of life over death. If we are able to give thanks, if we're able to bless God, if we're able to pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me through our tears? It's because our story doesn't end in sorrow 
and pain, but in never-ending joy and life. Would you stand with me, please? You're free to disagree with me at any point you want to. Um, and that's all right with me. Just know that God knows you, he cares, and you always want to be connected to him. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.